0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, welcome back to the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. We're looking at Genesis 3, 6 today. This is episode number 41. Coming up on 52. I've <laughs> uh, been doing it for almost a year then. Pretty exciting. What we're going to see today in Genesis 3 6 is the third foundational and revolutionary truth from Genesis 2 and 3. And actually, there's two foundational truths in, in verses 6 and 7. And so we're going to look at one today in verse 6 and then another one next week in verse 7. These two truths in these two verses are some of the most important truths in these opening chapters. And, uh, in fact, verses 6 and 7 are the central verses, grammatically, of these two chapters. So that only makes sense that these uh, two truths are found here. And uh, the truth we're going to look at today is also found or discovered, talked about, by a famous sociologist named René Girard... French sociologist, and uh, he I've talked about him. In fact, I had a little interview with Adam Erickson from the Raven Foundation over in my other podcast at uh, theology.fm about René Girard's mimetic theory. Uh, We're going to see a key concept from this mimetic theory right here in Genesis 3.6, and I believe that uh, this theory, this idea, this principle, this insight helps us understand God, Scripture theology, current events, what's going on in politics right now, uh, even your very own life, the relationships in your life. Uh, If you want to learn a little bit more about this, I do write about it some in my newest book, The Atonement of God. Uh, The whole book is not about mimetic theory. It's really about 10 areas of theology and scripture that um, a certain view of, of the death of Jesus helps us understand, but mimetic theory, Rene Girard's insights really helped frame my my writing of that book. So uh, it's not a technical book. Uh, I don't get into a whole deep, deeply into philosophy or theology or anything like that. It's a very readable book, and uh, if you want to find out how your view of God will never be the same after you read this book. I get a lot of emails and comments from people saying, wow, this book changed my life, changed the way I read scripture, changed my theology, changed the way I view history and culture. Just, it's so, anyway, go buy a copy of the book for yourself. It's The Atonement of God. You can get it on Amazon. Just search for The Atonement of God. Or there will also be a link in the show notes at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 3-6. So that's The Atonement of God. We have an awful lot to cover today, so uh, let's get to today's study of Genesis 3-6. So as I sort of indicated there in the intro, it's first of all important to recognize that Genesis 3-6 and verse 7, really, are the central verses of Genesis 2 and 3, these two chapters here. Uh, grammatically, that is all of the events leading up to these uh, lead up to these verses, and then everything that follows uh, sort of unfolds on what happens as a result of these two verses. So uh, Genesis two builds up to this section, and then the rest of Genesis three unfolds from here. And we're going to see today that Genesis three six contains a central truth, which is not only true for Genesis two and three, but for the rest of the Bible. And not just the Bible, but the rest of life in in general. And what is that truth? I won't waste your time? Uh, Well, the truth was, is, something that James, the brother of Jesus, also wrote about. In fact, the whole Bible writes about it, really. But James saw this, written about all over the place in Scripture, and he wrote about it in James 1, 14 and 15, where he said this, But each one is tempted when... He is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. These two verses are a perfect summary of Genesis 3 and 4. Uh, In these two verses, James uses three words. To mention the three stages of sin. The first stage is desire. And then from desire, we get sin. And then sin gives birth to death, brings forth death. And that's what we're going to see, sort of a preview of uh, where these chapters are headed. And right here in Genesis 3.6, we see that first stage, the stage of desire. Sin itself is not mentioned until Genesis 4.7. And once again, Moses writes that uh, desire is closely related to sin. It says that uh, sin's desire was for Cain. All right, and and um, and then we end up learning about how desire and sin ultimately leads to death when Cain murders his brother Abel. So uh, that's sort of a preview. But right now we're looking at Genesis three, and uh, Genesis three six is where we see the birth of desire. It's the dawn of desire. Eve is drawn by desire, which is the title for this podcast episode. And this is where we see here in verse 6, where we see what desire is, how desire works, how Eve is drawn by desire to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, so this is this verse here is sort of the introduction in the entire Bible to the importance of desire. Now, as we've worked our way through these verses leading up to this verse, I've been telling you that these two verses, verses 6 and 7, contain some more foundational and revolutionary truths. And the, the, the truth that is one of the most important truths in Scripture, eventually, by the way, there's going to be six foundational truths from Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, we've already seen two of them. Humans are made for relationships, and humans are, are made to imitate. Uh, so the third one here is here in verse 6, the fourth is in verse 7, and then uh, the fifth and sixth are, are later in, in chapter 3. And then, actually, sort of as a heads up, a preview, what we'll see is we will see all of them repeated again in Genesis four through the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, if you really want a preview, the rest of the book of Genesis continues to cycle through these. Uh, well, the latter four foundational truths, all right, based on the foundation of desire and imitation. I'm sorry, relationships and imitation. Those final four foundational truths are cycled over and over and over, repeated throughout the book of Genesis. All right, Moses is trying to get it through our heads about what James talks about in, in James chapter 1. All right, and this is the truth of scripture all over the place. Anyway, so Genesis 3 6, let's dive in. And uh, it begins with the phrase So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. Uh, the phrasing here reminds us of similar terminology that was used earlier in the text. Might recall in Genesis 131, for example, we read that God saw all that he had made and that it was good. And of course, back in, in Genesis 129, God invited the humans to see the trees that he had made, that they were good for food. So you might recognize this emphasis on seeing, uh, very similar to what we've talked about previously and read previously in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Remember, seeing is a key activity of God, which God invited humans to participate, to imitate him in doing. Remember, there was these seven key activities of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God invites humans to imitate him, copy him, emulate him, in all seven of these activities, uh, seeing was one of those. Seeing was closely related to naming, and it, and it indicates seeing things as they really are. So here in Genesis 3:6, Eve sees the fruit, that it was good for food. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily because she's imitating God, seeing, seeing that things are good. But the problem is that Eve, what Eve is seeing here. And she sees, seeing itself is not wrong, but she sees that this fruit from this tree, and she thinks, she sees, that it is good for food. And this is where the problem actually begins. Earlier, in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God had said that they were not to eat from the fruit of this tree. In other words, God was saying, back in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, that the fruit from this tree was not good. And do you remember what this fruit represents? You may recall that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the one area that God does not want humans to imitate Him. All right? There were these seven things. God said, these are the things I do. You do these too. Imitate me in these seven areas. But this one area of deciding, of judging, of discerning between good and evil, do not imitate me in this one area. This is my area alone. It's not because God was trying to withhold things from humans. No, we, we talked about this before. The reason God alone can judge between good and evil is because God alone is omniscient. He alone has all knowledge. So humans are not to imitate God in these ways because although some of our judgments might be correct, some of our judgments will be incorrect. And we will judge something that is evil, we'll judge it to be good, or vice versa, we will judge something that is good as evil. And that's what we see Eve doing here. God has said, this fruit is not good for food, right? Eve looks at it, she sees it, and she thinks that it is good for food. God says, this is not good. Eve looks at it and she says, looks good to me. (laughs) Eve saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eyes. All right? And so she decides that it was good when God said it was not good. All right this is judgment. this is deciding this is imitating God in deciding what is good and not good, good and evil right and wrong. and you see right here that she makes an incorrect judgment. She disagrees with God. By the way, first uh, John talks about John talks about this in first John. These, these uh, things that lead to sin, John, it, it, he writes in 1 John 2.16 that um, there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all right? And these three attitudes form the foundation for all temptation and obedience, and that's what we see going on here. Lust of the flesh, it's good for food. Lust of the eyes, she sees it, that it was pleasing to the eyes. And the pride of life, she says, well, I know better than God, all right? 1 John 2.16 we see the same three temptations when when the Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. By the way, the three temptations match those three things that John mentions. Three things that are going on here with Eve. Anyway, moving on in the text. The next phrase in verse six is the key, and it says that when she saw she saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. All right. So this is the third revolutionary and foundational truth in Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, And it's that imitation leads to desire. All right, first one, humans are made for relationships. Second, humans are made to imitate. Third, imitation leads to desire. What is desire? Desire is the feeling uh, of having or obtaining that which belongs to someone else. That's how I'm defining desire. And from this point onward, desire is a key word in Genesis 3 and 4. All right, we see it, uh, for example, down in verse 16, where God says Eve's desire will be for her husband, and he will rule over her. Lots of debates about that verse, but it helps us understand when we see desire here and what desire is, all right? Uh, this, This is a rivalry that comes from desire. We'll talk about that when we get there. Um, But we'll also be introduced to it next week when we look at verse 7. We'll see desire in uh, Genesis 4, 7, where God warns Cain that sin crouches at the door and its desire is for you. Okay? Uh, Desire becomes a key concept later in Scripture. It might be defined as lust or coveting. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is to not covet, to not desire. Uh, René Girard, he calls this mimetic desire. It's a desire that springs from imitation. That's what mimetic means. Uh, Mimesis, imitation, imitative desire. Again, I have a little chapter, appendix or something. I write about this in my book, The Atonement of God. If you've read the book, you, you know that some of René Girard's insights are incredibly helpful for understanding Scripture uh, but what he calls mimetic desire is—it's uh, quite fundamental to the human psyche. Uh, he points out that desire is at the root of nearly all forms of human interaction. Uh, we we get desires by seeing the desires of other. We have these mirror neurons. Uh, people are telling us, neurological scientists is is telling us these mirror. When you see someone yawn. Uh, You yawn. Why? Because your mere neurons are firing these desires. Okay, and what happens is is when when we look around in life, we see the desires of others, and we desire what they desire. We 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 see the desire in another, and we imitate desire. Uh, When we see, and of course, when they see what we desire, they imitate our desire, and that amplifies our desire even more. When we when we desire something, and then we see other people. Desiring what we desire, that amplifies our desire for that object. And eventually, their desire and our desire comes into conflict. Uh, I I think you can understand that. Really, I think what I've read somewhere is uh, people say that desire desires desire. (laughs) Sort of a confusing way of describing it. But but, um, you're not really desiring the object that the other person desiring. You're, You're desiring sort of the... I don't know, the power or the prestige or the, the experience or the, it's, you know, the, the incorporeal, the, the intangible item behind the object. You're desiring what they desire and and your desire knows that it is a good desire because other people desire it also. So you, you could say desire, desire desire, and you could also say desire, desires to be desired. Anyway, I don't get into it. <laughs> it gets sort of fun, maybe confusing. Don't worry about it. All right. The truth is that you see this happening all the time around you, day to day, minute by minute, almost. You experience it all the time in your life. All human interaction is based on imitative desire, for the most part. Uh, we see what someone else has, what they do, what they want, and we desire those things too. That's uh, what commercials and advertisements are based on. We see what someone else has, what they're doing, what they want, all right? Um, when when And of course, vice versa, when they see what we desire, what we have, what we want, that reinforces their desire for these things, that reinforces our desire, and then there's competition to see who can get it. This is where scarcity comes in, supply and demand, all right? Um, and of course then to keep it or get more of it or stop the other person from getting it. there's a rivalry, there's a competition. and sometimes this can lead to violence. Anyway, we'll be talking about all this as we go along because this is Genesis 3. This is Genesis 4. This is the rest of the Bible. And the Bible is beginning to reveal it to us right here in Genesis 3:6. Notice Eve does not just desire the fruit. It's not about the fruit. She desires what comes with the fruit, which is wisdom. Uh, the text says it was, she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. All right, and, and why did she want to be wise? Well, because God is wise. That's the whole, look at the, the conversation between the serpent and, and the woman. She wanted to imitate God, and that's a good thing, right? To imitate God, of course it is. God told them, imitate me. To imitate God is good and right and holy and, 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 and the way we're supposed to be. It's the way God made us to be. God wants his creatures to imitate him. And in fact, God wants his creatures to be wise as well. He doesn't want us to be stupid, dumb, and ignorant. So what is wrong here with Eve's desire to be wise? Why does she want to imitate God in this way? Well, the issue here, really, is that Desire is leading her to obtain what God has by taking it away from him in a way that he said was wrong. That's ultimately what it is. Sort of what we talked about last week. She is not turning to the things God provided for her in order to obtain wisdom. Instead, she is turning to the one thing he said don't do. She's not turning to her relationships with her husband. She's not turning to her relationship with God. She's not turning to every other aspect of creation through which God invited her to learn and grow in wisdom. Instead, she's taking the shortcut. She is turning away from her relationships with God and her husband and everything else in creation and turning to the one thing where God said, no, not this. Don't go this far. And that is what desire does. Desire consumes us so that we want what we desire and are willing to forsake family and friends and relationships for the sake of the desire. Desire is leading Eve to try to obtain the wisdom of God on her own rather than look to God for the wisdom and teaching and guidance and yes, wisdom that he would have provided for her in the midst of their relationship. And this is why Genesis 3 6 introduces us to desire right here. The truth about desire is this third and foundational truth from Genesis 3 and 4, or Genesis 2 and 3 and 4, I guess. We are built for relationships, we were made to imitate. And both of these are good, but desire causes the breakdown of both. I guess we could say imitation, while it's good, it has a dark side when we desire to imitate what someone else has or wants, to take it from them. Um, And and as such, desire is at the root of nearly all human problems. When we desire something that is in limited supply, or we desire something that we cannot actually obtain, or we try to obtain it in a way that we should not obtain it, like Eve does here, then desire leads to rivalry and violence. Again, we'll, we'll be seeing all this unfold as we work our way through Genesis 3 and 4. So, the third foundational truth is that imitation awakens desire. So, Eve here, she saw the fruit, she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, and then the text says, she took it. And this is what happens with desire. Desire leads us to take that which is not ours, or or which belongs to someone else, so here, Eve takes the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in so doing, she's trying to obtain the wisdom of God without turning to God for it. And I love how the text doesn't jump straight to her eating the fruit. Instead, it puts this, she took it first. Okay? It doesn't say she saw it was desirable to make one wise, and so she ate it. No, we first have this phrase, and she took it. This is her touching the fruit. And why does the text write it this way? Why does Moses write it this way? Well, because remember, as we saw back in verse 3, she indicated that even touching the forbidden fruit was forbidden by God. It wasn't a command of God. It was actually a religious fence, which either she or Adam, we're not sure who, constructed around the law. And so just sort of imagine the scene with me. Eve has indicated her belief back in verse 3 that if she even touches the fruit, she will die. So here in verse 6... I don't think she just reaches out and grabs it. No. (laughs) Human nature, she's going to reach out like it's a hot uh, stove top or something. It's beautiful to look at. You know, you've seen kids do this, and and maybe they reach out and and, and put put a finger on it or something. So she reaches out and pokes the piece of fruit there on the tree, (laughs) touches it with her fingertip. But nothing happens. She doesn't die. So maybe she, you know, grabs it with all of her fingers, not picking it yet. I don't know. I'm imagining the scene here. And she keeps her hands on it and looks around. No lightning strikes. No meteorites. No thunderstorms. Everything seems fine. So she takes the plunge and picks a piece of fruit. Holds it in her hand. Again, not taking a bite yet. Tentatively looking around for something to happen. For God to show up and strike her down or something. But nothing happens. You know, and her heart's beating. (laughs) Uh, her, her breath keeps coming. She doesn't drop dead on the spot. And you can almost hear her thinking, based on what she said back in verse 3. She's thinking, well, I mean, God said if we touch the fruit, we'll die. Here I am holding this piece of fruit in my hand. Nothing's happened. So I guess it's safe to eat as well. And so she takes a bite. This, again, as I, as I mentioned last week, In episode 40, this is the danger of religious fences. We make them to help us keep God's law, but what actually happens is they actually cause us to break God's law. Because we break the fence, we tear down the fence, and we look around and nothing happens. The consequences God warned us about don't come upon us. And we shrug our shoulders and we think God wasn't serious about his law after all, when in reality it was the fence that we constructed that we broke that was never God's law in the first place. We decide what is right and wrong, and then when we break what we say was wrong and nothing happens, we then go further and we break what God said was wrong, and that's when the consequences come. We need to let God decide what is right and wrong, and do what God says, and um, let you know. Don't don't construct these religious fences. By the way, the entire Pentateuch of Moses—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy—we've been reading these this Pentateuch wrong for well hundreds of years, really. Uh, John Sailhammer's written, written a book recently called "The Meaning of the Pentateuch." It's a fantastic book. Very long, very sort of difficult to read, but if you can wade your way through it, I I invite you to do it. There's links in the show notes as well for this book. But he points out, and I think he's exactly right, that the point of the Pentateuch was not to get people to obey the law. We think, oh, the Pentateuch, to get the people... No. What Moses is showing in the Pentateuch, what he's showing right here in Genesis, which is why we have it, is that God wants a relationship with us But we construct fences around the few things that God wants, and that not only keeps us from a relationship with God, but actually causes us to break the law. Moses is revealing this, that that religious fences ruin our relationship with God and with one another, and in fact, lead us to break God's law. That ultimately is the entire point of the Pentateuch, and it's a beautifully made point. And it's also what Jesus came to talk about. It's what the Gospels are all about and all of the confrontations that he has with the religious leaders in his time also. Anyway, that's a whole nother topic I would love to get into. It's a beautiful point, a completely different region of the Pentateuch. We will talk about that eventually somewhere down the road, either in this podcast or in some of my books or maybe on the blog. Anyway, here in Genesis, moving along, Eve took and then she ate. And we're not immediately told what happened to her, if anything. But the rest of the chapter explains exactly what happened to her. She's not struck dead, that's for sure, uh, because the text then says she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And this right here is a shocking detail in the story. Okay, Remember, we know the story, and so we know Adam was there. But if this you're reading or hearing this story for the very first time, Then back when Eve is speaking with the serpent at the base of the tree, remember, alarm bells are going off in everyone's head. You know, don't talk to the serpent. Where's Adam? (laughs) Go get Adam. It's like in those scary movies. You ever watch these scary movies? I'm not talking horror movies. Just just not even scary movies. Dramas or science fiction or whatever it might be. And you have all these characters. I don't know what it is. You know, they're driving through the woods in a car walking through town or who knows. And, you know, the scary music comes on. (laughs) And for some reason, these movie directors, these script writers, they always put this, this it's always a woman, usually. And she's like, oh, i stop the car. You know, I want to go out there in the forest and pick that pretty flower. <laughs> and everyone's like, no, don't stop. You know, don't go down there. Don't go out there. And, and sometimes in the audience, depending on, you know, if you're in the living room or something, people are like, no, don't do it. And she goes off, and you know, everybody's the couch is screaming at her. Don't go. Take a gun with you. You know, don't go by yourself. But she always goes, and you know how the movies go. She always dies. My my wife gets so upset at this character that is found in so many movies. This wimpy, dumb female character. She, it's just so pointless. Most women are not like this. And why is it always a woman anyway? You know, women are strong and smart, and they're not like this. Uh, so my wife always gets upset you know why this woman's always there why can't it be a man why do they have to include this person anywhere you know nobody's this dumb anyway that shouting at the screen is what's going on here in genesis 3 1 through 5 the woman is talking to the serpent and everybody's like don't talk to him don't go alone where is adam take adam with you and we get here to verse 6 and lo and behold Adam is there the whole time. (laughs) What? (laughs) It's a masterfully crafted story. The twist here at the end of verse 6 makes even the best mystery writer proud. And the twist isn't that Adam has been there the whole time. The twist is that he's been there the whole time and has remained silent. And that's what makes us wonder what is actually going on here. It makes, makes us think Adam's role in this scenario was more than just an innocent bystander. The fact that he was here and was silent the whole time should make us very suspicious of Adam. Right, if we're, if we're looking, thinking about a movie here, the movie scene has now changed a little, but it's no longer this woman traipsing off into the woods all by herself in the dark. Instead, the image that is in your mind now is of a woman being led off into the woods by a man she loves and trusts. And those of us watching are not really so sure that she should be trusting him. Look, I'm not trying to present Adam as this, you know, creepy predator. That's not the point. Uh, But but the the most straightforward and, and literal reading of the text shows that Adam clearly hung Eve out to dry here. Uh, He was there along with Eve while she was having this conversation with the serpent, and he never spoke up. He never protected her. He never defended her. He never clarified what it was that God had said. He never took her side. He abandoned her to the chaos creature while standing by to see what would happen. That's sort of a challenging idea. Go back and listen to episode 38, where we talked about this. History and culture has always scapegoated Eve, and it is completely wrong. Now, I I don't believe Adam purposefully threw Eve to the wolves, (laughs) or threw her to the serpent in this case. But I don't think that, I do think that his presence here in verse six and his words to God later on in, in the account, we'll talk about them when we get there, show that he had a much larger role in what went down here than most of us ever recognize. Uh, and, and when we fail to see what's going on behind the scenes, what we end up doing is we join Adam in blaming Eve for everything that's gone wrong. We join Adam in scapegoating Eve. Ultimately, as it turns out, we should blame Adam. Adam is the one to blame. In, in my mind, in this event, in this scenario, in these circumstances, Eve is almost completely faultless. How can I say this? Well, there's numerous indications from the text which show that the entire fault lies with Adam. First, for example, remember back in Genesis 2-7... Adam was created as the statue of God to serve as the priesthood of God within the temple of God. Remember when we talked about that? We saw that uh, among the various priestly responsibilities which God gave Adam, he was supposed to tend and protect the garden. He was supposed to teach others the instructions of God. To, he was supposed to take care of the animals and the woman whom God had provided And he was to help the woman join him in imitating God. And how has Adam done with these things? (laughs) Well, first, Adam failed to tend and protect the garden from the presence of this cunning serpent, this chaos creature. The fact that a chaos creature was in the garden and was not being silenced or tended to or guided... Uh, indicated that Adam was not tending and protecting the garden of God as he was supposed to, Genesis 2.15. Second, Adam misinformed Eve about God's instructions. Now, I personally believe that when Eve says in verse 3, they should not even touch the fruit lest they die, my personal belief is that this twist on, on God's command originated with Adam. I believe that Adam is the one who constructed the fence around the law, but I could be wrong on that. The text does not tell us whether it came from Adam or Eve. I don't know. Right? So even if I'm wrong on that and Eve came up with this additional command, this fence all on her own, okay, fine. Then Adam still failed because he did not speak up when she incorrectly quoted God's command here in Genesis 3.3. Either way, Adam failed in his responsibilities to accurately teach God's command to her. Whether this fence came from him or she came up with it and he didn't correct her, it's still his failure. Third, uh, Adam was right there with Eve during the conversation with the serpent and he never spoke up to defend her or protect her. So that's a failure in his relationship with her. And fourth, Adam failed in helping Eve properly imitate God. Again, as we saw last week, Eve imitated the serpent in exaggerating what God said and then also imitating uh, the serpent by inserting herself into the conversation that God had with with Adam alone before Eve was even created. Uh, Humans are made to imitate, that's fine and wonderful, but we're to imitate God and one another in certain ways and not in other ways. What's going on in verses 1, through 5 of chapter 3 is that Eve is imitating the serpent and Adam did not step in to redirect her attention, redirect her imitation back towards God. So that's another failure. Fifth, uh, when imitation exceeded its boundaries here in verse 6, okay, it led to desire. She wanted to be wise like God. She desired what she should not have. Um, Now, she was wise, she already had wisdom, but uh, this, this particular type of wisdom she should not desire. It was a covetous desire. And Adam, he would have seen her look at the fruit, touch the fruit, pick the fruit, and at any time he could have spoken up. He saw desire taking over and he did nothing. He let it happen. He let desire exceed its boundaries with Eve. Another failure on his part. Sixth and finally, when Adam saw that nothing really happened to Eve when she ate the fruit, he let imitation and desire take control of himself as well. Adam also gave in to desire. He desired what Eve desired. Okay, His desire imitated her desire. This, of course, is where desire comes from. Remember, desire imitates the desire of another. So, uh, Adam now, at the end of verse 6, he also is desiring the fruit, and so he eats from it as well, right there at the end of verse 6. So, when all of that is considered, the, the failure in the text lies completely with Adam. Desire has taken over, and the forbidden fruit has been eaten. What will the consequences of this be? Well, that is what we look at next week when we pick back up in Genesis 3-7. So there's been a couple of bombshells thrown into your life today. (laughs) Probably from this episode, bombshell that Moses was writing to undermine and subvert religion and law-keeping rather than endorse and support it. Passed over that real quickly. The real bombshell, though, is that Adam was more culpable than liable for what happens in Genesis 3 than most of us has, have ever realized. And maybe that bombshell about desire being the root cause of most problems in our relationships, in our lives, in the world throughout human history, that might have been a bombshell for you as well. Look, if you want to learn more about some of these things, please go to get a copy of my book, The Atonement of God, on Amazon. If you've already read it, I would love for you to leave a review on Amazon and maybe recommend the book to other people as well. Uh, If it's been a helpful book for you, please recommend it. Buy a copy for other people. Also, make sure you keep listening to the podcast as we'll be talking more about these subjects as we continue to work our way through Scripture, one verse at a time. Join us next week. Uh, We're going to be looking at the fourth revolutionary and foundational truth. We're going to see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7.